Hey everyone, before we get started with this week's episode, I just wanted to say I'm sorry about this episode being late. I had a problem with my podcasting provider, but it seems like everything should be fine now, and I will be back to releasing episodes weekly from now on. However, in a show of apology, I am also releasing a bonus episode on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash hookedthepod. So if you want to get those bonus episodes, you can become a subscriber, and that would be great. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to Hooked. I'm Rachel, your guide through the perplexing and sometimes deadly world of internet catfishing. Why do people catfish, and how many lies can they tell before they get caught? Stick around to find out in this week's episode of Hooked. David Farrier opens his 2016 documentary Tickled by describing his filmmaking career as centering around the weird and bizarre sides of life. And wow did he find it when he reported on this week's topic. His documentary was the main source for this episode, and you should definitely check it out. While surfing the net one day, David stumbled on a video of competitive endurance tickling. Googling that phrase, he saw it was actually a monthly event held in Los Angeles. People could apply to be part of it, and if they were chosen, they got free transportation, four nights in a fancy hotel, and $1,500 in cash. But not just anyone could apply. The agency casting the event, Jane O'Brien Media, was only interested in young, hot, male athletes. In LA, it's not hard to find guys matching that description, but they were also willing to fly the chosen participants into California from wherever. For each event, which was filmed on a private soundstage, four or five guys were chosen. They were all outfitted in matching Adidas sportswear, though I highly doubt Adidas was sponsoring them. The guy being tickled would be strapped down to a mattress, either on his stomach or on his back, one guy sitting on his back wearing a GoPro, and the men all tickling him mercilessly. The sessions are filmed from several angles, edited together, and posted on Jane O'Brien Media's Facebook page. And their page is popular. They have thousands of likes per video. The fact that so many people were watching this seemingly niche collection of videos piqued David Farrier's interest, and he dropped Jane O'Brien Media a message on Facebook, saying that he was a documentarian from New Zealand and he wanted to do a story on them. Would they be okay with that? A woman named Debbie Kuhn answered him, and she had clearly Googled David. So far, about five New Zealanders have participated. But to be brutally frank, association with a homosexual journalist is not anything that we will embrace. Whoa, okay. But she wasn't done. We desperately do not want a homosexual participant base applying for this project. My concern is that your journalistic style, reputation, and fan base in your country. This is offered in earnest and strictly professional. Yes, it was that badly and offensively worded. David wrote back. He doesn't show his response, but I assume he let them know that he wasn't planning on bringing a cadre of gay men with him if they let him do a story on the competition. But Debbie didn't seem to believe him. We recently read an article about your living with a homosexual partner becoming quite a stir in New Zealand. Competitive reality tickling is a passionately and exclusively heterosexual athletic endurance activity. The remainder of the globe does not share the liberal acceptance of your lifestyle. Anything concerning homosexuality is, at best, an objective disorder. Wow. David was getting these messages in 2015, not 1915, or even 2000. 
Besides the fact that Debbie was clearly being an insulting bigot, she didn't even have the medical community's backing that being gay is a disorder, as it is not considered that because, you know, we've learned stuff since the 70s. Debbie sent David several more messages that included slurs like shame on you faggot and little gay kiwis, with all three words capitalized. Debbie really was a terrible writer. I'm sure this wasn't the first time David had been the recipient of slurs regarding his sexuality, but it had to be jarring to be bombarded with them by this person he'd approached professionally. And probably if Debbie Kuhn had simply responded with, thank you, but we're not interested, David would have moved on with it. Because Debbie unprompted seemed to think that David was trying to throw gay men at her and was very scared of that, David decided to dig a little deeper. The lady doth protest too much. A quick Google of Jane O'Brien Media revealed that they were owned by a German company called Niederdeitzen. Sorry for the pronunciation, Germans. The site for Jane O'Brien was hardly the only domain Niederdeitzen owned. They actually owned about 300 domain names, all related to tickling. Some choice domain names. Ticklish Guy Casting, Reality Tickling, Ticklish Guy's Photography, and, strangely, PandaPoop.LA. Other than that, though, it was hard to find much on Niter Dietson, so David blogged and tweeted about this competitive reality tickling, hoping that someone on the internet could tell him more. His posts got a lot of attention, and the podcast The Dollop did an episode on it. Turns out Jane O'Brien and or Debbie Kuhn were still watching, from a safe distance so David's gayness didn't rub off on them. Two weeks later, David and his filmmaking partner, Dylan Reeve, received a cease and desist letter from Romeo Salta. If you're a true crime fan, you might recognize the name. Romeo Salta is the lawyer hired by the Don't Fuck With Cats murderer, Luca Magnata, when he insisted that an abusive boyfriend was making him kill people and animals. Not only had legal action been filed in the U.S., Jane O'Brien Media emailed David informing him that they were flying three representatives from New York to New Zealand. I think Jane O'Brien expected David and Dylan to go underground so the reps couldn't find them, but instead they went to the airport to meet them. They only knew the day the reps would be arriving, not the time, so they got to the airport super early and waited for hours with a huge rainbow sign that said, Welcome Jane O'Brien Media. Dylan was filming as the reps came over to meet David in the airport, and they were surprisingly friendly. Partly I think it's just because David seems like a very nice guy, but perhaps they also weren't as homophobic as Debbie. However, as soon as they noticed they were being recorded, they ordered Dylan to turn off the camera. David told them that actually, New Zealand allows filming in public places, so what they were doing was legal. The oldest man in the trio told David, We're not going to have a good time if you do this. I won't allow you to treat me without respect. David just shrugged and repeated that he was completely within the law to film. Unsurprisingly, they refused to let David bring cameras to their parking lot meetup the next day. But David rigged up a makeshift camera and microphone inside a coffee cup. The nicest guy of the bunch told David that he didn't think a documentary on tickling competitions would be any good, and they were worried about not having control over the spin David would put on it. He urged David to go in a more positive direction, but like... Why did they assume the lens was going to be negative? The most interesting part is that none of the men actually knew who Jane O'Brien was. And it didn't bother them. The one guy was like, there are people in the world with a lot of money that keep a firewall between themselves and what they do. In the end, the visit wasn't terribly exciting. It was all stuff that could have been hashed out over an email. But I guess Jane and Debbie wanted to show David and Dylan that they meant it when they said to back off. 
They didn't back off. When the three reps went back to America, David and Dylan followed a few days later. They had been contacted by a few of the men who had worked with Jane O'Brien Media, but a lot of them were too scared to speak on the record. But why? What was so scary about a company that distributed tickling films? It's a little weird, I guess, but it was unlikely most of the world would see it. Eventually, David and Dylan met with a young guy named TJ. He was a muscly, tattooed football player, probably in his early 30s when he was interviewed for the documentary, and said that at the time he'd applied for the tickling competition, he was desperate for money. He was training to be a professional football player but wasn't earning money yet, and his mother was having health issues. $2,000 in cash seemed like a great deal for some tickling, and according to Jane, he was assisting with research on tickling as a military torture tactic. He thought it was kind of weird that it was all guys, MMA fighters, bodybuilders, actors, all in great shape. But he didn't get concerned until he found himself strapped down to a mattress. While everyone was fully clothed and all that happened was tickling, TJ got a weird feeling that this came across as a little porny on camera. When you watch the footage, you can see that TJ is trying his best to keep his face turned away from the camera or block it with his bicep. In the end, he took the $2,000 and just hoped the video would never get out. Transition. For a year or two, TJ kind of forgot about the project, but then he found a video of himself on Jane O'Brien Media's YouTube channel. It wasn't the footage of him being tickled, but of him answering preliminary interview questions about how and where he was ticklish. It wasn't the worst thing ever, but for a guy who was working with teenagers, he didn't want anything that could be considered questionable online. He wrote to YouTube saying that his image was being used without permission, and YouTube took the video down. Problem solved. Or not. TJ started getting emails from legal at nighterdietson.com, super creepy ones, saying things like, now I am laughing. I don't think you've grasped the magnitude of what you have provoked. I'll be interested to see how you handle the fallout. The fallout of what? Well, Jane O'Brien or Debbie Kuhn or whoever was in charge posted the tickling videos of TJ everywhere. Porn sites, fetish sites, everyday sites like YouTube. Anytime TJ would get one taken down, five more would pop up. And they didn't stop there. They sent him messages threatening his family. They made a website doxing him. They contacted the high school where he coached and asked if they knew that he was a sexual deviant. They called him an out gay guy with a male tickling fetish and said he was a pedophile and a drug addict. He was fired and couldn't find another job. He'd try out for professional teams and be told he was the best candidate for the position, but they couldn't have the media distraction. David had tried to set up interviews with other men who had been involved with the filming in the past, but they were too afraid, and now David understood why. But he and Dylan thought they'd figured out where the next shoot was. They staked out the location, and sure enough, a van pulled up, and the reps from the airport got out. They and five muscular men carried film equipment into the building and stayed in there for hours, only coming out for quick smoke breaks. Eventually, David went over and tried the door. It was unlocked. But the second he was spotted by the reps, they threatened to call the police, and David and Dylan left quickly. But why were these guys being so secretive? If these tickling videos were less reality and more fetish or porn videos, so what? Those kinds of films are shot without shame everywhere, especially in LA. People make a profession out of it without being blackmailed by the filmmakers or getting the videos sent to their more everyday employers. 
David decided to meet up with a guy in Orlando who made his own professional tickling videos. The man's name was Richard Ivey, and he said he'd seen tickling as something erotic since he was five or six years old. Unlike Jane O'Brien's videos, Ivy was straightforward about his videos being sexual. He was a bit more high-tech than Jane O'Brien in his setup. He had a chair with restraints and used a variety of props to tickle the victim in addition to his fingers. Feathers, hairbrushes, electric toothbrushes, etc. He brought in a guy to demonstrate on, who told David, Once you're trapped in, you're there, so you might as well enjoy it. What a turn-on. While Ivy's videos are very high-quality today, they weren't always. In 1999, he had just left grad school and bought himself a video camera. As the internet grew, Ivy joined AOL and found that he wasn't alone in his fetish. With financial help from a friend, he started the site MyFriendsFeet.com, the tagline reading, Tons of videos of tickled jocks, you won't believe your eyes, so much content. Soon, he was making enough money from the site to quit his day job and feed his, and others, fetish full-time. Everyone's got a dream, I guess. In addition to his own site, Ivy was a member of message boards and forums dedicated to tickling. He noticed someone who posted a lot on almost all of them was a woman named Terry DeSisto, or Tickle Me Terry. Her profile details would definitely make someone suspicious these days, but back in the early days of the internet, there was nothing to compare it to. So Ivy didn't really think it was weird that Terry's profile picture was what looked like a photocopy of a glamour shot from the 80s complete with dramatic lighting and gigantic hair with bangs sprayed straight up. What were you guys thinking? It looks ridiculous. Terry was looking for guys to be part of tickling videos. But not just any guys. Young, athletic guys, ages 18 to 23, with, she wrote, absolutely no body fat whatsoever. And if that casting call doesn't ring any bells for you, Terry was also extremely overly insistent that this was not porn, okay? Something tells me that Terry might have a streak of homophobia, too. Even in 1999, Terry was more professional than most making these videos. She hired Dave Starr to be her casting director. He'd work for her until 2006. Starr described Terry as a strange, rich brat. Dave had started out by being a porn actor, but when he saw Terry's casting calls, thought he could find the talent for her. Terry hired him and told him that these videos were for private consumption. So Star started casting and filming. Stage one was questions and test tickles, sometimes filmed by the prospective victims in their own homes, and submitted. Stage two was tying the men to a table and tickling them, and stage three was the professional-style shoot and involved a group of men. Very straight men. Stop asking. Star worked hard for Terry, even when Terry herself wasn't able to work. She contracted a serious case of mono that landed her in the hospital, and from her sickbed, she would send Star letters and emails. Quote, I've been here since October, and I only now can write a little. I still totally want to continue the project, capital P. It's just on hold. She'd give Star instructions on what to do in her absence. By the time Terry got out of the hospital, Star had filmed quite a lot of material for her private collection. But then he started to see parts of that collection appear online. Despite the talent's contract saying that the videos would not be released publicly, Terry was not only doing that, but she also preemptively registered domains in the talent's names and published their specific material there. Anyone who asked her to take it down would be threatened by having the links sent to their parents or employers. Dave Starr was disturbed by all of this. This wasn't what he had signed up for. 
In 2006, he told Terry that he didn't want to cast for her anymore. Immediately, he started getting weird anonymous mail, and so did some of the talent he'd hired over the years. Someone, he assumed Terry, used a thing called a phone blaster that auto-called all past talent with messages like, You have been identified as a partner of homosexual pornographer David W. Starr, and told them that all their personal information had been leaked. If they had forgotten who Starr was, she described him to them as hairy, horny, and hook-nosed. This was obviously intended to be insulting, but because Starr is Jewish, it was also decidedly anti-Semitic. Through Starr, David was led to reporter Hal Karp, who'd spent a year investigating Terry in the 90s. Before Terry had gone professional, hiring Starr and filmographers, she'd gotten her kicks by paying young men to make home videos of themselves being tickled and send them to her for money. Lots of the guys who did this were college students, and a good amount of the videos were filmed in dorm rooms. Eventually, though, college guys get busy, or their roommates start looking at them weird for filming tickling videos in their shared space. But anytime a guy would tell Terry that they didn't want to make any more videos, she would go ballistic on them. Just like Jane O'Brien Media, she'd send the videos to authority figures in their lives. Deans, parents, coaches, employers. One of the guys, a student at Drexel, was forceful when he told her he was done, and Terry went a step further for him. Somehow she was able to use his IP address to shut down the internet service on the entire Drexel campus, and she sent threatening emails to the White House under his name. The literal secret service came to find him on campus. Another young man who was done making videos for Terry posted online, trying to figure out how to fight her. Someone responded by sending him a zip file, saying if you send this to Terry, she'll leave you alone. The student not only sent the file to Terry, who did in fact leave him alone, but to Hal Karp, the reporter. The zip file was a gold mine of information. Turns out the person behind the Tickle Me Terry account couldn't be Terry DeSisto, because Terry DeSisto had died in 1995. There were copies of the contracts that Terry had sent out to the talent, but they weren't signed by Terry DeSisto. They were signed by a David D'Amato. Who was David D'Amato? Well, he was a middle-aged man who lived in West Hempstead, New York. He had a master's level degree in education and spent his professional life serving as a guidance counselor or assistant principal at high school after high school. In fact, he'd been employed at eight high schools in 10 years. At the time the documents in the zip file were sent to CARP, D'Amato was pursuing a law degree at Fordham University. The irony. CARP handed over the file to the FBI, who arrested D'Amato within a week. D'Amato pled guilty, but because his daddy had co-founded one of the biggest law firms on Wall Street, he got a great lawyer, and so D'Amato's punishment was to serve some time in a halfway house so that he could keep going to Fordham. I just, I just want to be rich so I can do whatever the hell I want, guys. Every day is your lucky day when you're rich. In some semblance of karma, though, despite D'Amato continuing to attend Fordham while serving his sentence, and despite his case not even including the exploitation of men, the use of underage men, and the stolen identity, which is a federal crime, Fordham somehow found out about the arrest and expelled him. Since that meant that D'Amato no longer needed access to the outside world, he was sent to actual prison. Remember when David Starr was getting letters and emails from Terry while she was in the hospital with Mono for, like, a really long time? Yeah, Terry was sick because D'Amato was serving his prison sentence. 
After Star decided he didn't want to cast for Terry anymore, she kind of disappeared, aside from the electronic trail she'd left on 90s message boards. But as soon as Terry left the scene, Jane O'Brien Media popped up. Taking a second look at an online source, David Ferrier noticed that D'Amato had accidentally set hundreds of his personal files as public. When David took a look, he found company registration forms for Jane O'Brien Media. Also, there was an agreement with the private investigator D'Amato had hired to look into David Ferrier's documentary. David noticed that the address D'Amato listed as his home address was the same one that Jane O'Brien listed as their headquarters. When they googled the location, it wasn't D'Amato's house or the office of Jane O'Brien. It was the office of Romeo Salta. David and Dylan went to Salta's office to ask him if he knew anything about this, and Salta's office not only wasn't the location of Jane O'Brien Media, but Salta barely remembered who D'Amato was. He had sent David that first cease and desist letter, but all of the others David had received with Salta's signature on it had been forged. But Jane O'Brien hadn't just been threatening to young men from entertainment capitals like LA and New York. They were everywhere, all over the world. According to a former victim they spoke to in Michigan, the company had so-called tickle cells, made up of hired groups of young men who film videos for them in Ohio, Florida, Michigan, California, England, Australia, Italy, and many, many more. And why do these young guys continue to film tickling videos? Because Jane, or, well, D'Amato, knew exactly where to set up these cells. He found the most desperate, destitute towns in each place and offered the men more money for one video than they'd probably see in an entire year of working a regular job. While many of these guys had only planned to participate in a video or two, the fact was that they needed the money, whether it was to pay medical bills, raise kids, or feed a drug habit. And once D'Amato knew he controlled whether or not these men had a place to live and food on the table, he'd keep them working for him by threatening to blackmail them. David and Dylan traveled to Long Island to track down D'Amato in person. Turns out, while D'Amato did get his JD in 2011 and was working as a senior legal consultant at a Long Island law firm, he didn't really have to work. He had a trust fund of nearly $6 million set up by his father, George. He also inherited another $6 million from his mother, Brenda's estate. David did eventually track down D'Amato at a Starbucks and tried to ask him questions, but D'Amato refused to respond to him. So David tried calling people who might be able to tell him anything about D'Amato in recent years. Everyone he spoke to, from George D'Amato's old secretary to D'Amato's stepmother Dorothy, told him to stay away from D'Amato for his own safety. Dorothy said that she too was afraid of her stepson. When she spoke to David in 2015, she hadn't had contact with D'Amato in years and was disturbed to hear that he was back to the tickling stuff. I thought serving time would make him stop, she said, adding that she thinks he has a split personality. She described D'Amato as having a, quote, very, very strange childhood. He was bullied a lot, and his mother was so protective of him that she wouldn't even let him ride a bike or have friends. Dorothy also told David that D'Amato has never had a partner, but Dorothy wasn't sure if he was gay and afraid to act on it or was asexual. Despite later protestations from D'Amato that he had no affiliation with Jane O'Brien Media, after the documentarians caught him on their cameras, all legal threats from Jane O'Brien stopped. When the documentary came out in 2016, 
D'Amato filed a $9 million federal lawsuit for defamation, saying that he had no knowledge of Jane O'Brien Media and his stepmother's words about him were slanderous and caused him mental distress. In June 2016, Kevin Clark of Jane O'Brien Media set up a website to counter the claims made by David Farrier's film. D'Amato himself showed up to the premiere of Tickled to confront David. On March 13, 2017, David D'Amato died at age 55. While many people on the interwebs posted theories that D'Amato had actually faked his death to reinvent himself, the filmmakers posted proof on their website that he had actually died. They released a statement saying that they were sad to hear of his passing and urged their followers to treat his family with respect. The end. Just kidding. If D'Amato was the brains behind Jane O'Brien Media, and presumably was also Debbie Kuhn and Kevin Clark, one would think that the company would have folded, or at least be inactive right now, following D'Amato's death. Nope. The Jane O'Brien Media Facebook page is still very active. And a new website has popped up, Tickletopia. It proudly brands itself as the official website of Jane O'Brien Media. The man behind both the Facebook page and the new site these days is Louis Peluso. The filmmakers had tried to get in contact with him while shooting Tickled, but he never responded. Once the film was released, though, Peluso made a brief appearance on ABC's Nightline to deny that David D'Amato had any link to Jane O'Brien Media. But after D'Amato died, Peluso posted a sad response to the death on the Jane O'Brien Facebook page. In May of 2017, the Jane O'Brien Company page posted a list of a bunch of new video files that were available for purchase. And in response to a comment on that post, the company wrote that these clips themselves were from years past, but they'd shelved them for a few years because someone named David hated them. Hmm. And in case the name was a coincidence, I mean, three men in this episode alone are named David, they mention that going through the files makes them miss this David, because he died a few months back. And so the tickling goes on. Or at least the videos of those competitive endurance tickling still exist, and they're being sold for cash. While it doesn't seem that the men in them are being blackmailed or doxxed anymore, that doesn't stop someone from recognizing them in the clips. I hope the fact that no casting calls have been put out recently means that no more young men are being victimized by David D'Amato from Beyond the Grave. Thanks for checking out Hooked this week. We'll be back next week with a new story. But for right now, you can find me on social media on Twitter at HookedPodcast1, that's the number one at the end, on Instagram at HookedPodcast, and on Facebook at HookedThePodcast. Also, I'd love it if you left me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like what I'm doing, head on over to Patreon.com slash HookedThePod, where you can get access to early episodes and regularly released bonus episodes. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.